When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello and welcome to Bar Humbug, a podcast about the cuddliest of all movie genres, the Christmas movie. My name is Helen O'Hara and I'll be having a right royal Christmas discussion with today's guests because today we're going to be talking about The Princess Switch 2, Switched Again, new this year on Netflix and starring Vanessa's Hudgenses. And contrasting <laughs> that with 1983's Trading Places, which is available to rent on Amazon. And with me to talk about both are two of the world's greatest Christmas movie experts, two women who can recite the entire lineage of every royal and noble family mentioned in The Princess Switch, and who regularly toy with people's lives for $1 wagers. First up, I'm delighted to welcome author, journalist, and podcaster Caroline O'Donoghue, who's uh, the author of this year's Scenes of a Graphic Nature and next year's All Our Hidden Gifts, which is out in February, and is the host of the Sentimental Garbage podcast. Hello, how are you doing? Hello, very well. Very flattered to be here. Um, on my podcast, uh, we often compare crap to other crap, and it's so nice <laughs> <laughs> to have a good film to compare to some crap. So this is a, a welcome change. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, some of my guests have had to compare crap to crap. So we're doing we're doing pretty well. We're already kind of halfway ahead of the curve here. Um, and we are delighted to be joined by the Independence Chief Film Critic, a regular on Kermode and Mayo, and host of the Next Supremes podcast, which is about American Horror Story, Clarice Lockery. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I I feel like Christmas for me hasn't started yet and this might be the beginning of Christmas. Because oh, wow. I usually watch Elf and then Christmas has just begun Boom. at that very second. And I haven't done that yet. So I'm, Christmas is starting right now. This right, is officially I'm I think I saw a picture of your Christmas tree the other day though, right? Oh, well, <laughs> tree. It was about six inches yeah. in pink. Yeah, I live in a one-room studio flat, so I can't have an actual tree. <laughs> I felt like I should have something for Christmas. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's about the size of my hand. It'll do. You know, I mean, it's the symbol that matters, right? It's not the size, it's what you do with it. So, exactly. uh, I'm sorry. This is <laughs> not that kind of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Gather around it on Christmas morning, my tiny, tiny hand-sized tree. <laughs> So um, before we get started, let's kind of calibrate your attitude to Christmas movies so people kind of know what to expect. Are you more of an elf or more of a Grinch, both of you? Elf, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really, I, the thing is, I'm more of a Halloween person. I feel like everyone who knows that I exist also knows that fact. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm big on Halloween. So Christmas has always come second in my mind, both with the the holiday celebration and the films as well 
But one thing that's always really been special to me is growing up on Christmas Eve, we would always watch The Bishop's Wife, which is sort of the alternative It's a Wonderful Life. If you don't want the depressing side of that movie and you want Cary Grant being a very sexy angel. The Ooh. whole plot of that film is that Cary Grant just goes to a bishop's house and seduces his wife and says, hey, maybe you shouldn't work so hard, otherwise your wife wouldn't run off with sexy angel Cary Grant. Yeah, I feel like there's a, there's always that's always bothered me because like, he's Cary Grant. I feel like she'd, she'd still think about it, even if he wasn't working much at all. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> it's a flawed plan. It's a flawed plan. Yeah, that was the one remade as The Preacher's Wife with Denzel Washington as the angel, wasn't it? Yeah, which I haven't seen because I'm I'm so attached to Bishop's Wife, but maybe I should watch it. It's not bad. You I know? haven't seen this, this Bishop's Wife. That, I haven't seen the Cary Grant movie, but there's something inherently quite Christmassy about Cary Grant. I think there's something Mm. about his sort of timber and sort of masculine. He just looks like he's just come in from the cold with some snow on his shoulders, a bit like, oh, what are we all doing? Whiskey? Ah." You know, it's very Christmas party boss guy energy, which I appreciate always, all year round. Yeah, I agree with that very much. He looks good in an overcoat. Like he can wear an overcoat, you know? Yeah, and you want him to sweep a long scarf around his neck in one fluid motion, you know? (laughs) Oh oh my God, stop it. Come on, we're only just starting. Caroline, what's your favourite Christmas movies? Oh, absolutely. It's a Muppets Christmas Carol from December 1st. That is on the Spotify playlist and it, it doesn't leave it really. Um, despite the fact that if we take, you know, the Muppets Christmas Carol as a, as a record, as an album, mm. there's quite a lot of, um, there's a lot of fat on that bone. There's a lot of like, so, not just um, Bell song, which is famously always cut from the theatrical version uh, mm. The love is gone, but also there's some very unusual songs there with a uh, beaker and honey dew. There's like a odd anthem from Sam the Eagle that didn't make it into the film. But I just love love that movie. It is my favorite iteration of the Christmas Carol story. I think chiefly because first of all, all the Muppets are just performing to their best. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah, yeah, super good day that day. Yeah, completely. Like Miss Piggy, the range is incredible. You know. I can I can recite every line of dialogue from that film. It's like, oh, my eyes. Oh, I, I was just testing them, dears. I was just testing them. Um, and I also think that because it's the rare example where Kermit doesn't have to anchor the plot of the film because Michael Caine is doing mm-hmm. that, it gives um, uh, Kermit more sort of range to have fun. <laughs> I think that's true. I, I would 100% accept that. That seems that seems fair. I, I always thought that it was one of the more faithful adaptations of A Christmas Carol, actually, which has become, so it's become like a, an entire Christmas movie genre on its own, just twists on, variations on, and reimaginings of A Christmas Carol is like this massive growth industry. But it's one of the ones that actually feels like Dickens- well, I don't know if he'd have approved, now I say it out loud, but he would have laughed. I think he would have laughed at Simply least. Simply impossible to know what Dickens would have thought of the concept of puppets. <laughs> but I think I think Dickens would agree that making the Marley brothers as opposed to Marley singular is a better mm. choice. You know, it's two of it makes more sense to have two of them. Yeah. Well, as we see in Trading Places. Segway. <laughs> Because that, that is basically what the Duke brothers are in Trading Places, right? So, uh, oh, of course. Right? So, the, okay. The Sadler and Waldorf of that movie. I did think that watching it, I was like, this is, these are big Sadler and Waldorf vibes. 
They really are, aren't they? They're they're bloody brilliant. But look, let's let's just set up these two films that we're going to talk about. We are going to spoil them. So if you haven't seen these two films and you're worried about spoilers, please do go away now, watch them, and then come back because we we will be discussing whatever comes up. So the Princess Switch Two switched again comes from director Mike Roll and stars Vanessa Hudgens as Stacy, who's a baker from Chicago who is now happily married to the prince of a country apparently called Belgravia. But it also stars Vanessa Hudgens as her double, Margaret, Duchess of Montanaro, who is now set to inherit the Montanaran throne. <laughs> sure. And also stars Vanessa Hudgens as Margaret's cousin, Lady Fiona, which is definitely a name that noble people have. Um, who plots against both princesses as they all switch places and accents like it's going out of style and things get extremely complicated. We're contrasting that with John Landis's 1983 classic Trading Places, wherein Dan Aykroyd's rich, snobbish Louis Winthorpe III is reduced to disgrace and penury by his evil old bosses, the Dukes brothers, who are played by Ralph Bellamy. And meanwhile, street hustler Billy Ray Valentine, who's played by Eddie Murphy, is suddenly elevated to the upper classes. It's all part of a wager that the Dukes have to find out whether nature or nurture are paramount in determining a person's fate. But they've reckoned without their two experimental subjects and without hooker with a heart of gold, I'm so sorry, Ophelia, who's played by Jamie Lee Curtis. So, I mean, I'll be honest, my comparison between these two films is fairly spurious. It's based on the fact that people literally trade places in them, that there's some kind of class element involved, and that at least one person is playing outrageously posh. That's all I got. So I don't know if that in any way convinced you. What do you think? Well, I think they're both um, vaguely adaptations of Prince and the Pauper, right? Yeah. The Mark Twain story. Kind of. That was my, I mean, <laughs> really loose. <laughs> but it's, yeah, the idea of the two the, the two classes and they switch and they see what it's like on the other side. Mm. And they both enjoy it and they go, wasn't that great? <laughs> yeah. I, I think the difference here, though, is um, what makes the princess switch... Uh, dazzling really is um is the fact that most you know most body swap or class swap or any kind of swap um comedy like your freaky fridays or trading places or whatever um is it's mostly concerned with empathy isn't it mm. it's mostly concerned with like you know enjoying the spoils of the other person's life but also seeing that it's not as quite as easy as we thought learning about institutional poverty etc um how hard your mom jamie lee curtis has it um but like this Princess Switch is not concerned with any of those things. It's not concerned with empathy or seeing the other side or what it's like for the working man or what it's like for people who are living in poverty. It's very much about the setting up of kissing. And <laughs> <laughs> that is all that these traded places set up to serve is who gets to kiss. And briefly in Princess Switch 2, who gets to have money, which is in, um, in this case sort of Lady Fiona, who is this um, sort of tacky, lower-ranking noble person who has no money, and so she has a, for for you know the quite thin plotting mm. of this movie, a pretty good plan, I think, <laughs> is to briefly switch with with um the the heir to be Margaret, yes, Margaret, um to rush up her coronation like it's like a weird 
wedding like it's like a weird bootleg wedding she's like oh we rushed up the coronation to right now and please i need to be with the orphans so can we just coronate me right now and then make a huge donation to an offshore account and then move to a country with no extradition policy which yeah and she then, could nearly yeah. have ended up on the same beach as uh, as billy ray and lewis spoiler do at the end of uh, trading places you know you you feel like that's what she had in her head uh, for the outcome to the extent that there was anything in her head yeah, precisely. <laughs> She's just a trading places fan. That's it. That's her only motivation. She wanted to live that story. It's a very casual country. Mm. I, I love Montenero. They, yeah, they don't, there's nobody at the coronation, basically. <laughs> it's like a small wedding, no TV cameras, not televised. The public don't seem to really care. They're just like, yeah, we'll have a new queen, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the logistics of this are impressive. And, you know, I, I didn't ask you to rewatch The Princess Switch because there has to be a limit to my sadism. But um, the the first film, which I did go back and rewatch, like is very much made on a lower budget. So that must have done quite well for Netflix that they were willing to give this one a bit more cash. Um, but even so... More cash on outfits as well, it seems. Yeah. But, but even so, I feel like there's there's a real limit on how posh you can go on a budget. And unless you are actually making a proper kind of big Hollywood studio movie, and I wish this is something that some of these Netflix films would take seriously, but like it's very hard to portray the actual lives of royals, the actual lives of, you know, dukes and duchesses and all the rest, because I'm sorry, we can see the the metal legs on the fake Christmas tree that you've used. You know, it, it is it is quite, yeah, you do have to very much suspend your disbelief when it's trying to make any kind of allusions to any regalness because this is very much a genre mm. of hallmarky. I think Netflix have quite shamelessly sort of ripped off the kind of hallmark Mark studio system yeah. that they have, which is that they sort of rent a castle in Romania for 10 weeks and they shoot 17 films there and all <laughs> of them are about American girls who be princes. It's quite a beloved trope and Meghan Markle has only added to the industry. And it is this thing where it's like everybody is ex- essentially just wearing kind of um, secondary school formal gowns mm-hmm. bought in TK Maxx. And like the only things that they have to sort of lend itself to kind of a posh, fancy atmosphere is old character actors and English accents. And it's like, it's just quite adorable, isn't mm-hmm. it? You're like, yeah, I guess. I guess it's nice. Yeah, you know? I, I feel like I feel like um, the Princess Diaries has quite a lot to answer for. Like they set up this kingdom of Genovia, where everyone speaks yes. like Julie Andrews, and I kind of bought into Genovia. I'm like, all right, they speak English for some reason, but I suppose that could be in the Alps somewhere because that's what it looks like it's meant to to be. But but I'm now really confused about the geography of all of these places because you're right. The Netflix already had a hit with the Christmas Prince which is now a three-part saga. And those characters actually turn up in this movie at the wedding, at, at the coronation at the end. So, you know, they're they're planning this whole kind of royal interconnected cinematic universe, if you will, and I won't. Um, but it's it, <laughs> like it's happening, do you know what I mean? And it's, it, I'm, I'm so, so confused by the geography because it kind of looked like they flew across the Atlantic from Chicago, which I believe is a real town, and landed on an island where people speak English, or at least a place on the, on the western side of Europe where people speak English. But it didn't appear to be either England or Ireland, so I was a little bit confused. 
It's just it's Europe. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. It's an interesting thing of like you're seeing um you're seeing Europe where we all live, mm. like bounced back through the lens of this um sort of American film that is made for both children and ironic adults. Mm. And it's just sort of like so what you're seeing is is that um um, they think that you, or they think that, that that people are willing to buy that Europe is just a thousand tiny countries the size of like you know Chicago or whatever, mm. and all of them are British, and so it makes you think it sort of does make you sort of work backwards in your head, and you're a bit like, okay, so like maybe it's one of those things where like it's like a Commonwealth, and like all of these countries were colonized by Britain, and they just kind of have these weird sort of puppet monarchs in it <laughs> or something. You know, I, I think we've probably put more thought into this already than the filmmakers did. But yeah, I'll go with that. It's a kind of commonwealth. Somebody I think suggested on Twitter, and I'm sorry, I forget who, but suggested that this is a vision of a post-Brexit Britain, not just, you know, Scotland and Northern Ireland hiving off, but literally the entire country breaks down into little dukedoms and fiefdoms. And that essentially these these films are set about 20 years in the future and uh, portray, oh, you know, like Essex it. or Sussex or something. Essex becomes Montanaro. Montanaro, yes. I just love the names. It's sort of like they seem like street names in London, but also variations of Monaco and like bits of it. It's just, I mean, it makes sense to me as somebody who is American and has American family. I, this is unfortunately the view of Britain that many Americans <laughs> have, and everyone's just can I have to deal with it? <laughs> well, this uh, this is something I've often talked about, the fact that especially in films directed at kids, um, if a, an American character comes to the UK, they will definitely fall in with nobility. And like, I've been here for 20 years. I have yet to fall in with any of the nobility, I'll be honest. And, but, you know, it seems to happen instantly to every single American tourist, down to and including Garfield the cat. it's because it's all it's it's this is what the uk is famous for unfortunately it's just like queen and royal and the crown and (laughs) carriages and tea and (laughs) i mean i think those are okay things to have as the defining features of a country but it just results in films like this What I love is as well is that these um these like bright-eyed bushy-tailed american girls who like go and find their prince or whatever they're always like immediately accepted by the, the people mm. love, them. love them they're so warm they're so not stiff and it's like oh and like there's always like the staff are like yeah she gets it and then it's funny because i think we've all just come off watching the crown season four as yep. well and we actually find out what happens to people who are even remotely warm who come into the royal family it's like they die in paris yeah, I, I do feel like there's a there's a missing crossover op- opportunity here with the crown and the, this this extended prince universe because I do think Prince Edward in this is doing a little bit of a Prince Charles impression, just a little bit around the edges. Yeah, and I just she woos at the coronation. <laughs> the American, the the like American girl who's been a princess for some. I don't actually know the time span between one and two. Uh, do they clarify that? It's at least a year. I think it's about time. a year since they got married. Okay, <laughs> she's been a princess for a year, <laughs> and she still thinks it's okay at a coronation, mm. a royal coronation, to be like, "Woo, yeah, that's my girl, that's my girl. <laughs> she's getting crowned queen." I just, 
I mean, in her defense, like her husband keeps kissing her in public, like which again would seem like kind of a no-no for these people. You know, you'd expect them to have a problem with that. Um, so I guess, you know, that whole royal protocol thing is not such a, a thing in the Netflix royal cinematic universe, which I'm not calling it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it, it really did like throw people when those Christmas prince people turned up at the wed at the wedding at the coronation at the end, basically. Um, because I'm pretty sure I remember her sitting down to watch a Christmas prince in one of the yes. other films. So I'm yeah. really confused now as to who those people were on screen. Maybe that's the, the sort of the equivalent of the crown in this universe. You know, that's the like real life dramatization. Of their romance, I'm really but they also played themselves. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> the sure. It's so weird. It makes. Well, no what sense. do we think of this movie? As per, like, like if trading places. I don't know where that came in. Sort of like Eddie Murphy's run of like absolute mm. monster hits, like Boomerang, Coming to America, um, pretty early, sort of, yeah, yeah, cluster of sort of early nineties work. And like where he was sort of becoming this mainstream movie star. Mm. And the Princess Switch is billed really as being this kind of comeback project where we all appreciate how good apparently Vanessa Hudgens is. <laughs> like, what do we think of it as like as as the Vanessa Hudgens vehicle? Because I think there's a lot of like I think what I like sort of ironic love for these movies. As like, oh, next next year she'll be there'll be four Vanessa Hudgens, and next year there'll be five <laughs> Vanessa Hudgens, and so many like, Vanessa Hudgens. Is is she carrying this movie? Is my question. Well, is she carrying it well? <laughs> <laughs> I think if, if anyone is carrying it, it would pretty much have to be her, right? I feel like she's fun at least, and that's sort of the baseline expectation you have with this. I did like Fiona. Mm -hmm. who I'm guessing is named after the Shrek character. Yeah, honestly, I, I think that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And, and she went full Cruella de Vil, but Cruella de Vil, like, in that Descendants TV show, the mm -hmm. Disney one, where it's, like, Disney villains, but they're cool teens at high school. <laughs> As she was giving me a very strong Descendants vibe, and... And like I, I don't really know who else could have done a better job of doing that, of <laughs> just being a weird English, posh, crazy Montanaran, Cruella Deville. Mont sorry, <laughs> Montanaran, <laughs> Cruella Devilleian, <laughs> leather pants wearing, crazy woman. Yeah, I, I, yeah. Props to her. Yeah, I mean, she did. She definitely seemed like she was having most fun as Fiona this time. I feel like it was probably Stacy who's the Chicago-born baker, of course, do keep up, um, who was shortchanged uh, in this one because she had really no plot whatsoever. Like her husband thinks maybe, you know, she doesn't love him anymore or he's not doing enough for her and, and that's not really the case. And that's entire, in, the entire plot for, as far as she's concerned. Um, so that husband character Edward, is yes. Edward, who we touched on briefly earlier, is the first character in, in cinema, if we can call it that, that made me understand the incel cause. <laughs> I was like, this man is pathetic. It made me feel so toxically sort of against him. I was like, grow a pair, Edward. Stop moping around, talking to children about why your wife doesn't like you. Just like, she's got responsibilities. She's got things to say. This is, 
this is what they mean when they talk about cocks. It's it's Edward. <laughs> Edward like that. I get it now. It all makes sense. I mean, it's 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 harsh, but perhaps not entirely unfair. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not bad for that actor. I think it's probably quite hard to be him after this. Yeah, I, I think, like I say, I think he was going for a thing. I think he's going for a very kind of young Prince Charles without the f- affair with Camilla kind of vibe, you know, he's got the slight, some of the slight kind of diffidence of, of manner that, that I think Prince Charles has in, in some of his public appearances. So yeah, very much living in his shoulders. Yeah. Kind know? of hunched in on himself. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is weird because his parents don't appear to be obviously toxic when we saw them in the first one. So I don't know quite where that's coming from. Um, Margaret, of course, uh, has a whole will they won't they they definitely will thing with um with Kevin, who I think we all remember was Stacy's baking partner in the first one. <laughs> who could forget? <laughs> who could forget Kevin? And his absolutely that man is truly very hot. He is very handsome. Like, and there is unnecessary toplessness just just to like hammer the point home, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Um but it does mean that there's now Americans on the throne or near the throne of three European countries in this universe. Again, I'm just, it's, it's a lot to, to process, you know, what's wrong with all the European hotties? Where are they? I don't understand that. I did not understand their plot line at all because they'd broken up mm. and Stacy, uninvolved in the relationship whatsoever comes in being like, you two should be together and both of them are like, no, no, we've moved on. It's over. She's like, no. <laughs> She's like, you have to be together. Mm. And then they just go, yeah, right. <laughs> and then they're just together and they don't really work on it. And they're just like, yeah, this woman said we should be together. So I guess we're going to get married now in an airport. Yeah. In an airport. <laughs> I mean, look, it's maybe worth discussing the fact that all of these Christmas films, and I say this with love, like I'm doing this podcast because I do enjoy that these things, even though we're ripping the shit out of them. Um, but all of these films are kind of small C conservative for the most part. Like all of these, I'm not saying necessarily trading places, but like these kind of Netflix, Hallmark, Lifetime Christmas movies, there is always one person you're supposed to be with. And if that person turns up in the first film, you can be pretty sure they'll be back in the sequel and you'll still be with them. Like that's not, you know, you're not going to sleep around in these films. You're not going to play the field. Yeah. And and like the sort of the conversion of intimacy in these films is that like what would equate to sort of having a shag together in, in the real world is like people with cups of hot chocolate holding the mug with both hands. Like that oh. is that is foreplay <laughs> in this film or in these films. It's like holding cups and going, hmm, and like shrinking into your jumper. Mm, falling over in the snow. <laughs> Very that. Uh, helping the orphans together is a big... Orphans are a big of this film always talked about but seldom seen are orphans mm. orphans played a big part in the first film as well yeah that's europe that's europe. europe's just europe. filled with orphans that's what americans think water war is <laughs> matilda uh the what's i forgot the little french one in the yellow coat it's just orphans mm. everywhere madeline. madeline madeline yeah madeline matilda yeah just Oh wait, Matilda's not. Matilda's not. No, she wishes she was. Her parents are so bad that she might yeah, as well. Yeah, she emancipates herself from her parents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. you're right. There, there are a lot of orphans. I mean, so Caroline and I were talking before we started about how we feel sometimes like the American vision of Ireland solidified at around the time of the famine, and that they feel everybody in Ireland still lives in very small cottages and kind of ekes by on farms for a living. Um, 
it kind of feels there's something similar maybe going on with like Europe as a continent that maybe the there's some image of Europe that solidified at some point in the past, possibly po- post-war, which would account for all the orphans, possibly a little bit earlier, which would account for all the you know royals. But you know, there's some kind of weird vision here that doesn't necessarily accord with reality, for sure. I think the explanation might be is that because America is sort of you know white Americans are all it's an immigrant nation mm. and and every white American is so desperate to trace their roots back to somewhere often inevitably in Europe mm. and so when people talk about being Irish American they want to have this like rosy nostalgic view of what their ancestors were doing uh I mean yeah that like that's my my ancestors came over from Ireland um I think before the famine so Americans have this sort of longing for history Mm. because it's a relatively new nation and so i think that's why they want to solidify europe as being like the place of of their ancestors and it's the you know like the old the old country basically but for all of europe collectively an old country (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's my take on it yeah no i think that's fair i think that's fair all right i I feel like we've perhaps devoted more time to the princess switch uh series than it perhaps deserves it it did. yeah let, let's <laughs> maybe let's maybe talk a little bit about trading places because this i'll be honest right when i went back and watched this last night that's probably for the first time in maybe a decade it's a while anyway and it was more racist and more boob filled than i remembered <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it, it reminds me a little bit of um a movie I've always been really fascinated by, which is Six Degrees of Separation starring Will Smith. Oh, yeah. And where the point of the movie was um, this sort of uh, very, very handsome young Will Smith sort of like crashes this sort of Park Avenue home and claims to be the um, the sort of son of Sidney mm. Poitier. And they're utterly bewitched by him, even though the story is completely spurious and he robs them blind. And it's, it's, I really, really like it. It's a really fantastic movie, but it feels like this very kind of like late eighties sort of early nineties play on this kind of fascination with like a cultural exceptionalism kind of thing. It's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, they're black and we're racist, but like, imagine if we could escalate them to the, our sort of high society. It's like, it feels really uncomfortable and also really like what's the word exoticizing and mm. just like a very sort of like pygmalion kind of vibes i think happens a lot with um with comedies where race is at the center do you know what i mean am i explaining that right i don't know but it's mm. it, it, it it does sort of give you the willies now a bit doesn't it <laughs> Um, I mean, that Sydney Poitier thing, the Six Degrees, was based on a true story. There was a scam artist who went oh. around and did that, and uh, and then that, the play and the, and the movie came out of that. But but yeah, I mean, it is. I feel like again, we're talking about American myths uh, a moment ago, or Clarice was, and I feel like there is this that American society thinks it's a lot more uh, mobile uh, than it is. Yeah. And like statistics show, it's it's not terribly different from Europe, I think, in that regard. So I wonder if there's a an element of that. I think actually this film kind of acknowledges that. I think that this film acknowledges that if you are born poor, poor you're probably not going to become a Lewis Winthorpe III in a way that some American films, I feel like, don't like to... Because it's not the American dream, is it? It's not. It sort of isn't in line with their self-image. Mm, I think of this film and a lot of... 
a lot of 80s comedies hmm. when they're talking about things of, of race and class. It's sort of the the baby steps recognition right. of, mm. of someone, you know, when someone's just starting a conversation, they're just starting to realize they're like, oh, yeah, race and class are interlinked. Mm-hmm. That's the film that comes out of it is Trading Places. And so it's the kind of thing that I, I recognize it's, it's worth mm-hmm. at you know, in its time. But yeah, to watch it today, you're a bit like, all right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> what what are we doing here? The, there's a few bits that I really, I had not remembered, like use of the N word, outright racism. Um, most of it coming from the Duke brothers who are supposed to be awful. Some of it a little bit less so coming from uh, Lewis himself, who is also supposed to be awful and then goes on a bit of a journey to learn. Um but even then, like the fact that it's in the film and even our hero at the end dons blackface as part of a scam to basically get get the thing that they need to do the thing to beat the bad guys. Um, mm-hmm. And again, this is all this is all stuff that has not dated brilliantly, I think it's fair to say, any more than the portrayal of, you know, a hooker with a heart of gold in the form of Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, Ophelia. The um the scene with the the blackface reminded me of there's another film from I think around this period called Silver Street mm-hmm. with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor and there's another instance and I think at this time okay I'm gonna explain it I think I'm not saying it's correct I think people thought that blackface was okay if the black character was asking the white character to do it yeah because that's how the situation is set up in both of these films yeah I don't know. I don't know where that justification comes from, but that seems to have been the idea in the eighties. They were like, "Oh well, you know, he said it was okay, so we did it." I, I think, even though I think you're right, yeah, yeah. He's a white creators and white writers. It's like, but our black characters said it was okay, so it was fine. Well, because it's weird, because like in film history, like you know, you go back through, and there was blackface very, very early on. But like the NAACP was right there complaining about it in, you know, 1929 for the jazz singer, you know, so it's not like they're suddenly this has become taboo because we're all, you know, so social justice warriors or whatever they're saying these days. It's literally been taboo for a hundred years or more. But you're right, it, it happens way more than you remember in 80s movies, like this kind of stuff. Sheesh. Mm. And it's like the the layers because then we fast forward to to like the era of Thirty Rock where they also had an instance of blackface with John Hamm, but their justification was, oh, but we're pointing out how bad it is, and it's having to go through this like arduous journey of like, no, there is no justification for it. Like, stop trying to offer these weak <laughs> defenses yeah. for it. I'm hoping we're finally getting to the point where it's just. Everyone's like, okay, it's not okay in any mm. form. I think but we are. We'll see. It's so funny that you bring up 30 Rock because like, there's so much in that kind of Jack Donaghy, Tracy Morgan dynamic that you can see a lot in, in Trading Places. And I, I often think about 30 Rock because I love it as a show. And I think anyone who loves great writing loves 30 Rock, right? Mm. And But there's a thing about that show in general where it's like, it's I can never figure out whether it's a little racist or it's obsessed with racism. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like very interested in like like pointing out tropes and pointing out what people's expectations of each other are and what they what what white people expect black people to know about, what black people expect white people to know about. And like the scene where that's done like really well in trading places is where 
they're trying to explain um commodities to Eddie Murphy's character and they start with like so a commodity is da-da-da-da, and we're commodities brokers and he goes down to and from a pig's belly you can get bacon like you may remember from a bacon lettuce and tomato sandwich <laughs> and he just sort of looks to the camera and it's just, it's just so funny because that kind of thing is endlessly amusing to me it's just the like the depth to sort of just white ignorance will go of like we we literally have n- nothing <laughs> we have no <laughs> sense of what you know or don't know we are that sheltered we are that inside this bubble that we are going to go right down to explaining what bacon is <laughs> <laughs> What is bacon? No, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, and and you know it, it's the kind of throwaway lines like uh, like Billy Ray is showering after this, you know, this being adopted by these Duke brothers and taken to this fancy new house, and um, and first of all, they're really like you know the the butler asks what to do with his clothes, and they say, oh, just get them cleaned because he'll need them when he goes back, which is really really yeah for for a start but also while he's in the shower they're like he's singing or something and they're going oh they have they're so musical those people and you're just like oh oh no um but it's 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 literally every yeah every scene almost especially every scene with the duke's brothers and and uh and billy ray is it just made me cringe but i guess it's meant to i don't think just getting back to Cary grant for a second I don't think any of this would have happened, right? If he hadn't convinced Hildy Johnson in his Girl Friday to remarry him uh, and ditch Ralph Bellamy, which is clearly what sent him on this path to becoming Randolph Duke. Oh, oh it's all interconnected. Coming together. It's all one universe. <laughs> and then they're all going to go to the coronation. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> But yeah, what did you think of of the Jamie Lee Curtis character? Well, <laughs> I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis is amazing, but yeah, I I was very struck by the the amount of boob. So much boob. <laughs> it's a very boob heavy film, mm. and it just gets a it's a bit tiring after a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, nothing against her boobs. She has spectacular boobs, um, and so did the other woman who, for no reason, in the middle of a party, got their their tops off no disrespect, you know, sex positive, all the rest. But it just, it felt like a lot of boobs for your average human interactions, you know. I'm very curious as to what job Jamie Lee Curtis's body was doing in the 80s and 90s, because it feels like, what's a Schwarzenegger movie she's in as well? True Lies. True Lies. Like, that is such um, a formative sort of latency period (laughs) sexual memory for me being like, this is... This is horny and I don't know why and I sit <laughs> in a cold place now <laughs> because I'm very, I'm very disturbed by this. But like I feel like there was this fixation with her body in particular as like the sort of hard, firm mm-hmm. woman with kind of like a friendly face. So it's like that kind of juxtaposition <laughs> freaks men out or something. She's like, well, she's her her smile is the girl next door, but that body. <laughs> there is a bit, yeah. Yeah, and you see it in every movie she's in. Wasn't wasn't she called the body at one point or then? I think. Am I misremembering that, Clarice? You might know. I think because it was an aerobics thing, right? This yeah, is the Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis. She was like the whole ideal body of the eighties mm. was. Like, I do a lot of aerobics, and that's why in this film the women are just always wearing leotards, mm-hmm. even when they're not near a gym. They're at a party. Like she's about to go to bed, and she's just wearing a leotard. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that 
that's it it's like the the hard body it's like the aerobics that's the body you have if you do aerobics every day which is not true yeah I mean honestly if, if doing aerobics every day got me that body I'd be I'd be more active than I am but I don't believe it. I think I think there's a certain amount of genetics involved in the in the good form and and face of Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, I feel like she got a little bit of that from her parents. So I'm not. Yes. Yeah. Did you spot the Giancarlo Esposito cameo? Yes, in the, in the, in the there's a cell. lot of cameos in this. Yeah, yeah. he's in cell. There's um, there's a bunch of people from SNL just littered around because <laughs> i guess they just phoned their mates right and just like come on be in this movie why not sure why not i mean i guess i mean there is obviously form for that uh, john landis also has frank oz play an authority figure in blues brothers of course mm. and uh, and actually has the duke brothers turn up on the street in destitution in coming to america oh wow Again, it's again all these cinematic together. universes. <laughs> so many cinematic universes. So yeah, it's it. it, it I think you're right. It, it it has something to say, but you might be right, Clarice, that it's kind of my first awakening to racism. Um, do you think they'll one day waken up to sexism as well? That's a question. Well, that's a job for working girl. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. God we have it. Um, if only it were a Christmas film, we could discuss that at more length. Um, and there's also a really uncomfortable gorilla sex joke running through the last few scenes of the movie where the bad guy, Mr. Beeks, who's played by Paul Gleason, who was the uh, school principal or, or dean anyway in Breakfast Club, uh, is is stuffed into a gorilla suit and stuffed into a cage with a horny male gorilla who then appears to have his way with him <laughs> very yeah it's just this is again my thing with 80s comedies it's the sort of um it's the writer's room quality i guess mm. of it that it, the ideas just come out of nowhere it's be like oh they should go on a train and there should be a gorilla on the train and then like yeah the bad guy ends up with the gorilla and and there is yeah something happening with them <laughs> it's it's fascinating. It's what makes those movies great, but it's also what makes those movies confusing mm. to the modern eye. I feel like maybe audiences back then were, were more used <laughs> used to this and expecting it, but I was a bit like, "Why? Why? Why, <laughs> why have we got here?" It's, it's the kind of thing that that feels like it was born out of conversations, like. Well, you know, the ending isn't testing very well. And you know what always tests well? Guys in gorilla suits. You know, it feels like very <laughs> peanut gallery kind of thing. It's like, well, we've got all these ideas about race and class in here. We need some we need some low with the high. We need the gorilla suit. I think that's fair. I think we definitely, yeah. I think that would explain it, basically. Uh, it's hard to explain it any other way. Hello, I'm Sam Pei. And I'm Martin Zolt-Sorstwick. And we are the two hosts of a podcast called Song, Song by, by Song, where we listen every week to a track by the musical artist Tom Waits. Uh, you might know him for his gravelly voice. <coughs> very nice. His appearance in films, but also his multi-decade spanning career uh, involving blues, jazz, and all sorts of other kinds of experimental music. So we're basically like a book club for Tom Waits. And if that sounds like your cup of tea, you can find us at songbysongpodcast.com or wherever you get podcasts. Okay, let's. we've kind of talked a fair bit about these films, but let's rank them now under two different criteria. So 
first of all, we rate these films for Christmassiness. How Christmassy did you find these two films? Clarice, so. Is this out of 10? Or is I'll be a- honest, I've been completely non, uh, <laughs> non-standard about this. Sometimes it's out of five, sometimes it's out of 10, but I feel like 10 gives us more, you know, wiggle room. So let's do that. It's, it's so Christmassy. <laughs> when the, the one thing we didn't talk about is when they do up this palace. And as you said, it's a beautiful Eastern European palace. Mm. It's the ugliest thing I have ever seen. It is lights and tinsel everywhere. And there's one scene where Vanessa Hudgens goes to a mantle that has already been decorated and just starts throwing on more tinsel. <laughs> and it's silver in a room filled with gold decorations. Oh, and Rookie error. It's ugly, but Christmas is ugly. Hey. <laughs> That's part of the charm. Hey. But I feel like it is. Like to embrace the tackiness of Christmas is to truly be Christmassy. I feel like a classy, you know, when you see rich people and their their minimalist Christmas. Oh tree. yeah, their trees are entirely white or something. Ugly, bad, not good for Christmas. This, I would say, I want to give it like an eight out of ten. And how about trading places? I would say not that Christmassy because yeah. A, Christmas is only sort of one section of the film. B, um, the one sort of issue with Trading Places is that it's not really a message of goodwill and love to all mankind. It's like <laughs> money's great and everyone like everyone should be able to have it, but like you should the money's good. Have the money. <laughs> it's a, the it's money. A very, like it's a very strange message because it's sort of mm. leading towards pro equality, but this version of capitalism where everyone's rich, <laughs> like everyone's crazily rich, which I don't, it doesn't quite gel. So I would give it maybe a three out of 10. Sorry, there's a very long explanation. No, no, that's absolutely, <laughs> that's absolutely what we want. You, you need to justify your scores. That's perfect. Um, uh, Caroline, how about you? I think they're both representing like um, two very distinct cinematic kinds of Christmas. Right. So obviously with the Princess Switch, we've got that sort of deeply heightened romantic. There is at least three Christmas trees in every frame. Mm -hmm. And how and like the moral goodness of a character is reflected by what kind of Christmas tree is behind them. So like... (laughs) When we're in Lady Fiona's like horrible lair with her her two cronies who just seemed like they were people who like didn't make an open casting call for Love Island. Um, just like there's like this horrible plastic red Christmas trees behind them, and that shows that they're evil. And then when we're with um with our our heroes, like I've forgotten their names, our, our other Vanessa Margaret and Stacy, of course. We have these full furs, and everything is deep and rich and green, and everyone's wearing thick velvets and things. And so I, I enjoyed that sort of like um, romantic castle, the whole thing where they're like, like, like this is the, this is once again where like foreplay is communicated via the medium of hot chocolate. Where like <laughs> this couple who like Clarice quite rightly pointed out have no business being together other than their mutual friends want them to be together. The, their only like romantic moment in the movie is that they're both looking for the hot chocolate in the kitchen and then flour Falls. comes on. Yeah. <laughs> But it represents snow, which is very Christmassy. Christmas. Yeah. So very Christmas. Love it. And I love um, the function of these kinds of movies in my life. And they do have a function in my life is that they're just, they're like an ambient Christmas thing. They're a bit like uh, the Netflix the Netflix fireplace, but yep. with script, you know? Yeah. 
just like oh you're developed you're like casting a cozy glow on the room whereas trading places the kind of christmas it represents is like it's a business christmas it's like scrooged it's like um the santa claus or whatever it's like very much like oh we gotta get our christmas profits because we've all forgotten what christmas means which is love kind of thing and you get that sort of like that hard heavy like city christmas where like someone's in a really grimy santa claus suit and people are going for extremely expensive lunches and stuff and Mm -hmm. and um i i do i do appreciate both sort of christmas lenses i do like the hard city christmas as well as the princess switch christmas yeah so numbers 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 let's talk numbers (laughs) you belong in trading places i know right Um, i'd be so good i would give like the princess switch in terms of like basic crass commercialism, like, and uh, I would give it an eleven out of ten. <laughs> and uh, trading places, which is encapsulating another kind of crass commercialism, a nice healthy seven. Mm, fair enough. Well, what I'm, about you, Ellen? I'm thinking about it. So I think that trading places is very low for me. I mean, it, there is a Christmas party. Dan Aykroyd does crash it dressed as the filthiest Santa the world has ever seen. And I mean that physically, not, you know, in terms of his uh, sexual life. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that's about it. And then he waves a gun at people and, you know, puts an entire roast salmon in there in the front of his of his jacket um, and it. leaves, you know. So, so that's not what I would call a good Christmas. So I'm going to give it like a two, I think, out of ten. That's that's pretty poor Christmasing for my money. In terms of the the princess switch, so here's the thing: like Christmas doesn't need to be involved in any way. There's nothing that would change if it happened in the summer, except that you know they've decided that this is part of their kind of Christmas series. But like, there's no reason for any of on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah, why would that be a thing? It makes no sense. I know the Queen does her little message on Christmas Day, but there's no other royal association with Christmas. So I kind of feel like while they have the trappings, they don't actually have the point. So I'm going to give it like a six, I feel like. So yeah, I'm bringing, I'm bringing the score down. But now th- there is another criterion on which we rate things on this show, and that is objective, or semi-objective at least, quality. I mean, because Christmas movies can get away with being a little bit shit, but how do these fare in terms of if you take that sort of Christmassiness, that Christmassy glow away from them, mm. are they any good? I, th- I still think Trading Places is a good movie. Mm. Like it bounces along, it's pacey, it's not accurate, it's Eddie Murphy. It's like I think we 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 risk being too. Um, I don't know. Harsh. I'm not going to say woke because it's it's over the top and the, and, and this sort of like movie ha- does have things to say about race and class, even though Clarice does say that it is a uh, very much baby first, baby's first, <laughs> you know, semiotics, um, but. It's a fucking funny movie, mm. you know? I laughed and that's what matters and yeah, as like an as like a great former SNL cast movie that will always will exist for a long time in the in the sort of comedy consensus. I think it deserves to be there. Yeah. The Princess Witch, I could do without. <laughs> <laughs> scores, scores. Uh 2 and a 8. Seven. Two and a seven. I think we can see which one's which. Yeah. That's <laughs> <fair>. <laughs> Clarice, how about you? Yeah, I, I think pretty much exactly what Caroline said. Um, not to be boring, but <laughs> um I think it yeah, trading places I deserves to be 
the the classic that it is you know even with all the negativity that we just <laughs> surrounded it with <laughs> i feel like we haven't been kind enough to trading places yeah i like, think that's probably true i i agree I there's gonna be people who are going to be really angry because i know it is lots of people's like favorite movie and stuff like the, that that sort of that scene where dan Aykroyd is sort of arrested and he's like trying to get the sort of police back on side and saying is anyone seeing this i have witnesses it's just it's so over the top it's so good and it's so it feels so right as well yeah they are both magnificent in those roles i mean they are great eddie murphy doing his kind of semi stevie wonder impression at the beginning when he's pretending to be blind but also pretending to have lost both legs in vietnam i mean <laughs> it's so wrong it's brilliant um he is incredible uh, and then like the switch that he goes through so he's the real switch huh, bringing it around again to the princess but he you know he's suddenly when he has a fancy house and he has nice things suddenly getting really antsy about having his friends over for a party and trying to you know, take put ashtrays down and you know, complaining that people haven't heard of coasters and stuff like this. Like it's a it's a great character arc. It's a really, really good transition. And Dan Aykroyd's snootiness as Lewis is so off the charts. It's a genuinely great comic performance. It is one for the ages. Like so credit where it's due. You're right. We we have been enjoying dunking on it which is fine because there are elements that invo- that do deserve that but it is also great sorry clarice you no, should uh, I, you should also give your scores that's the thing. i think you have to talk about the negative stuff because it would be incredibly weird just to pretend that none of it was there but i everyone sort of has their their snl like great comedy movie that they're you know really obsessively attached to hmm. Like Trading Places isn't mine, but like I see why it would be people's like people's yeah. movie for all the reasons you said, like the the performances and the chemistry. It's always the chemistry yeah. that always strikes me with these films how how well everyone sort of plays with each other, and and you can tell that this is a long running network. You know, these aren't people that mm. just met; these are people who've been working together um, for years. So yeah, I think I would probably give it a not so objective seven out of ten because that's just how I feel about it but if people were giving it higher I yeah and the princess witch oh like two (laughs) (laughs) it's not it's not good it's it's simply not good (laughs) I just I got really mad at the relationship but why Stacey was forcing these two people back together they moved on like let it go Yeah, and there's a lot of like convenient telling and not telling people information. Like she tells the chief of staff about the switch around, but she doesn't tell her own husband. And it's like, yeah, well, why? Yeah. Why not though? Also, if you were married to someone, you'd be able to tell who they were. I just, yeah, I feel like you wouldn't be that confused. I have great aunts who are identical twins, and they tried this on their on their boyfriends once, and were wow. immediately called on it. Yeah, because so they dressed up in each other's clothes. You know, they acted like each other immediately. They knew They're different people. Oh. You wouldn't be like what? <laughs> there wouldn't be three people who like look and act and have exactly the same vibe. It's not a thing. You're really tearing apart the entire premise of the <laughs> film. There, I mean, there's no story there. People can tell. Um, you know what's remarkable about the princess switch that we must give it credit for is that the sort of the switch because there are three identical strangers essentially um there's no real like makeover moment there's Mm. no like Eddie murphy you know homeless guy to like posh upper crust guy kind of thing there's no there's no real switch around internally it's just like accents and hairspray but they like 
we have like a, like a six minute segment of like Fiona becoming someone, someone and all this kind of stuff. It's like basically the putting on and taking off of certain lipsticks. Essentially, yes. Yeah. yeah, and, and, yeah. For, and for like, I have to give props to Vanessa Hudgens for generally it was clear who was on screen out of the three and who yeah. they were pretending to be. So I feel like that is, that's no mean feat. I'm actually going to give... I'm going to give the princess switch four out of 10 because of that. Cause I feel like it'd be a two out of five for empire, um, which is what I'm used to doing. So I feel like, cause I, I do think she does quite well with what is at least a literally multi-layered acting job. So I will give her that, but you're right that, I mean, the relationships are awful, absolutely dreadful. Um, and trading places, I'd, I'd go an easy eight out of 10 because it is hilarious. It is very funny. It's just in some respect has aged a little bit. And I think it's fair to acknowledge that. Sorry, people, if you are a 10 out of 10 person, but, you know. Trading Places also really makes me miss comedians in films. Mm. You know, like, I think it's the death of the blockbuster comedy movie came when we just decided that we can make Scarlett Johansson swear a lot and then make Rough Night, you know? Mm. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it doesn't work that way. It's mm. like you can't just, like, teach an actor who's done drama to tell jokes and it just worked the same. Like the, the idea of having just a lot of comedians who have been, as, as, as Clarissa said, have worked together for years and years to make something together. That's like silly and fun and festive and works like it. And it basically, you know, even when SNL movies don't work, they work, you know? Yeah. Tell you what we need. I'm just going to pitch this right now. I know you guys are both powerful in Hollywood and can make it happen. We need a John Mulaney Christmas comedy blockbuster. Um, oh yes right this would yes. be i think an instant nailed on you know five-star classic i feel like he could tell the story of the little ghost girl that he talks about in kid gorgeous you know make that into some kind of whole christmas ghost story okay. christmas so carol if, thing if you were to slot him in into like one of the the key sort of um christmas genre films so your christmas carol your it's a wonderful life it's a wonderful life um, your your man who can't get home to see his kids because of a reason. Um, <laughs> it would no, it would be one of the forties. George Bailey. It'd be one of the forties ones because he has he does that voice. He does that kind of forties American voice so brilliantly, and I love it when he does it. I mean, he kind of does it almost as Spider Ham in uh, in Spider Spider Man yes. and Spider Verse, and just but like I just love that accent. I just find it really nostalgic, obviously because of you know Cary Grant and and jimmy stewart and all that kind of generation and i i would love to see that i think he'd be really funny that i think that's so good and i think i think what would so pitch for this movie okay the, yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful millennial or it's a millennial <laughs> life or whatever is like to identify what everybody thinks when they watch it's a wonderful life which is that pottersville looks more fun <laughs> <laughs> you're a monster oh my god it just does. Like we need to, we need to do something with that. Where like the sort of the quest to sort of stay in Pottersville and like make it as a stand up in one of the sort of late <laughs> night bars and like. But no, but you have to earn your wings and you have to make sure that Mary is in the spinster. It's like no. <laughs> I would love that. Oh my god, this. I, I mean, it's blasphemy, but it could work. I kind of actually <laughs> want to do that. And yeah, could work actually. Who could be a great screen partner? And I don't like saying this because I don't love his work, but I do think he he has some range that we aren't using as a society. Okay. Seth MacFarlane has that 1940s face and patter down. Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And he sings. Yeah. Beautiful. He has a beautiful he singing sing. voice. Yeah. He has a great voice. Yeah. 
he's not being used properly that mm-hmm. man i think because he he came he got to a point very fast in his career where he could decide what he wanted to do and i feel like his decisions are not always the decisions we might want for him no. But you're right in something like this. This could work because they both have the voice. We just need some other people who have the voice of the 40s. And I genuinely think we're on something here. Hollywood, call us. You know where we are. I know you're listening. What is so. the female lead? Yeah. Oh, Kristen Wiig does the voice. Oh, she does. And, okay. Well, this Kate is cool. as the other girl. Yes. Sorry, I'm, I'm really deep in this. I really want this to happen. <laughs> Well, so we should probably uh, stop the recording there so we can go off and start writing this incredible script, which is going to make us all millionaires. Clarice, Caroline, thank you both. Can you tell listeners where they can find more of your work? Uh, I am on Twitter at Clarice Lou. Just start typing my name and it'll turn up. <laughs> I'm just trying to do my name as the username and there's a limit. You're not allowed to put the whole name. <laughs> it's really sad. It's it's discrimination is what it is. Mm-hmm. Absolute discrimination. I'm an apostrophe user. Caroline, you as well. When have we ever been able to use our full names? A. Eh? How do people pronounce your name when they don't realise that it's an O apostrophe? Um, I've had, I have had a couple of people who hadn't met me in the flesh and who thought it was maybe some kind of Japanese name. Oh uh, yes, yeah. so I I get Odenigwe quite a lot. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah. Um, but where should people be looking for your for your stuff? Basically, in all bookshops, right? In all bookshops, yes. Yeah. So I have two adult novels out, Scenes of Graphic Nature and Promising Young Women. And my first, my YA debut, which is sort of fantasy, is coming out in February. It's called All Our Hidden Gifts. And in the meantime, I'm on Twitter at Zaraline. Amazing. That's like Caroline, but with a Z, like a Zara. And a Z, like See? Russia. Yeah, yeah like Russia. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming along. Uh, thanks all of you for listening. And uh, yeah, Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. My first Merry Christmas of the season. <laughs>enjoyed listening to bar humbug please give us a five-star rating on apple podcasts because it really helps other people find the show you can also subscribe so you automatically get the rest of this podcast lined up hassle-free and it's only going to be a limited run up to christmas it won't be using up all your data if you'd like to hear more from me you can pre-order my book women versus hollywood the fall and rise of women in film which comes out in february 2021 you can also of course find me in empire magazine which is the world's best film magazine for my money and i'm on the empire podcast every week and host the podcast his darker materials to coincide with the bbc hbo drama his dark materials if you'd like to connect with me or comment on the show or have any queries or comments i'd love to hear from you you can find me on twitter at helen l o'hara or you can email producers at stripped.media. And I'd like to thank all the people who have made this podcast happen. Thanks to all the team at Strip Media, including Ben Williams, who edits this podcast, as well as Tom Wally, Dave Corkery, and Kobe Omanaka, who have all helped produce and put this show together. Thanks also to all of my guests who have been absolutely wonderful in giving up their time to watch some Christmas films that are not always 100% great. If you'd like to know more about this podcast and others produced by Strip Media, please visit www.stripped.media to find out more. And that's it. Merry Christmas. You just heard a Stripped Media production.